0: Hello everyone and welcome to Risky Business's coverage of OSERT's 2011 conference here on the Gold Coast. I'm Patrick Gray. This coverage is brought to you by Microsoft, so big thanks to Microsoft for making Risky Businesses' coverage of this conference possible. You're about to hear a presentation by Jason Larson, a security researcher at the Idaho National Laboratory in the United States. The INL is run by the US Department of Energy and is home to the National SCADA testbed, the NSTB, and also the Industrial Control System CERT -CERT. I'm going to read uh, a little bit from his talk synopsis here. The first half of Jason's presentation is an overview and update on what's happening in control. In most cases, simply sending properly formatted commands to the field equipment is enough, but there are cases when this does not achieve the attacker's goals. If the field equipment contains sanity checks, the attacker needs sub-second control, or if he simply wants to hide, he will invade the field equipment. Understanding the challenges the attacker faces are essential for any sort of investigative or forensics effort. The second part of Jason's presentation will cover attack and forensics of the embedded systems used in industrial control systems. Now, we were a couple of minutes late plugging into the, the mixing desk in this talk, so we'll pick up Jason's talk just a few minutes in. Here it is.
1: But uh, let's look at uh, something that uh, uh, one that was a little bit more challenging. In this case, we looked at the uh, network, and uh, there's an Ethernet network tying together a bunch of Windows hosts that talk to the PLCs, and we have the safety system. And there was actually two ways into the safety system. Um, once we. Uh, uh, once we got onto the network. One was uh, there was actually a serial link between the uh, master machine on the safety system and the main control network that fed, uh, um, fed set points back and forth and uh, had some feedback and logging and um, disaster recovery type functions. And uh, we could get it, uh, we did get across that serial connection. Another way that uh, um, that we could hack into the system is that we got code execution out on the PLC, and the two uh, PLCs were tied together on the same field bus um, because the safety system and the uh, main control system fed off of uh, some some common smart sensors. Um, so they're tied together so that they could both get points from the uh, the smart sensor. In this case, uh, as an attacker, the attacker could go up, get into the PLC, and then run across the uh, um, run across the field bus, and then get into the PLC. DLC over on the safety system. Um, So if we're looking at hacking embedded systems in general, then uh, most modern embedded systems are just a bunch of microcontrollers chained together with serial ports. Um, And and, uh, in years past you'd find lots of analog power uh, power electronically type stuff, but pretty much anymore it's a bunch of microcontrollers tied together with uh, with serial ports. So uh, um, just to... uh, kind of illustrate the point, let's take a smart meter that I I tore apart. And so this is a generic smart meter and not anybody's particular implementation, so please don't send me hate mail. Um, And and in this slide i removed the uh, circuit board, so so please don't send me heat mail either. So in this case, uh, we were looking at uh, this particular smart meter, and the smart meter has, uh, has um, two interfaces. It's got a 900 megahertz wireless backhaul um, that talks from smart meter to smart meter and eventually up to the utility, and a 2.4 gigahertz uh, Zigbee interface to go talk to the home area network and uh, all of the stuff inside of it. But if you look, there's a bunch of chips inside, and each of these are hooked together by various serial protocols. So If I'm uh, coming in across the the Zigbee link and I get uh, code execution, I don't instantly get code execution on all of it. I I would uh, get code execution uh, maybe over here on the 802.15.4 chip or on the high-end CPU or the main CPU or wherever that buffer overflow Um, actually went. So then I'm going to have to move around the board um, to get to where I want. In this case, uh, like if I wanted to turn the power off, if this is a remote disconnect on the uh, actual power meter, I'm going to have to be down here on the metrology board. then if I want to go attack the backhaul network and try and spread to the utility or to all the other meters in the region, then I'm going to have to be over here so I can send and receive my broken 900 megahertz messages. Um, But if you look at each one of these, each one of these is going to be a different microcontroller um, by a different vendor or maybe a common vendor. Um, hooked together um, across the serial line. So, uh, um, so in this case, uh, uh, what we uh, uh, what we wanted to do was uh, just uh, um, was just get onto the meter and then expand across. So, uh, me and a, a fellow researcher of mine actually did come over there, grab the networks, and uh, and write an exploit for the meter uh, for it. Um, and so in the, this case, all we had to do was get onto the one ch- uh, chip because we started on the 900 megahertz side. We exploited onto the uh, 900 megahertz chip, um, and then we uh, um, and then we told that to run around and take over everybody else. So we uh, um, we did that. We uh, made the little rootkit say uh, say owned on the uh, the LCD panel. We slapped it in, and all the other meters started saying owned, owned, owned. I'm like ah, this is awesome. Um, so the uh, um, so then we started uh, mod- actually modeling the worm and uh, seeing how quickly it would spread and, uh, and that type of stuff. And we used the very scientific thing of my apartment at the time is right there where it says duck head. Um, so uh, we didn't do uh, anything terribly scientific with the spread. Um, but uh, um, if, if somebody comes over there and now we have... Uh, now we have worms and we have fraud and that type of stuff. And somebody were to come in and then grab a meter and say, "Hey, I think there's a worm on this, or I think that somebody uh, made my power bill higher than it was supposed to be, and uh, you should help me." Um, so in order to actually start doing forensics on these devices, then we need to understand exactly what the uh, what the challenges the attacker had to uh, had to overcome in order to um, successfully build a, uh, to build such a worm um, or uh, um, uh, modified the bill, et etc, and uh, um, what he had to do. So this knowledge really isn't covered in the current literature, so I'm going to run over um, over some of it. So uh, most embedded systems, it's hacked like it's 1999. Um, When I first learned to do binary exploitation, I thought it was hard back then, but now I I look back and it's like, ah, that would be um, totally a vacation. So uh, in most of these embedded systems, on the little chips inside of them, um, they lack a kernel. They're not uh, what a computer science guy would actually call an operating system. So it's all uh, running in a single... um, in a single address space, Um, so all you have is user mode or kernel mode depending on how you look at it. There's no memory protection. In most microcontrollers, any byte of memory can can be read, write, and execute all the time, and hardware most of the time doesn't even support read, write, and execute uh, um, permissions. Um, There's no virtual address space, which means there's no virtual address space randomization and uh, none of that type of stuff. There's no data execution protection. And uh, so if you uh, look at uh, all of the major people that uh, write uh, operating systems for that, um, VxWorks and all those, really what they're giving the developer is a bunch of C code that uh, can initialize the hardware and, and start up the external RAM and all of that. And then you write all your code, um, your C code to go with it, and you link it all together into one big project and compile it down, and that becomes the firmware of the device. So uh, those are the upsides for the, uh, the attacker. Um, you know, no, uh, no modern protections, no address randomization, that type of stuff. So he has a whole bunch of downsides that are different. Um, one of his major problems is gonna be what I call rebootiness. Um so, the, uh, um so the mantra of embedded system developers is if anything goes wrong on this thing, reboot it. So, uh, um, so if you come over there and you're following lots of the, the, uh, the pathways, you'll see all these pathways inside the firmware that says, okay, I did this and did this, and this was unexpected, so what do I do? I reboot. And so uh, they have uh, watchdog timers in case the firmware sits there and gets an infinite loop, the watchdog timer uh, will go off and reboot the system. Um, And they have uh, common address lines and uh, that type of stuff. So if an attacker is over here um, uh, trying to to attack the CPU, um, in his very first payload, he can't, like, spawn a shell. In the very first payload, he has to get the... uh, get the firmware of the embedded system, the corrupted now corrupted firmware, into such a state that the meter keeps running. If he doesn't, it's going to reboot. So the upside for the attacker is that he can just reboot it a bunch of times and try again and again. Um, the downside is he's got to get everything perfect, and there's no like intermediate of just spawning a shell. Um, so the, his shell code can't actually sit there and just take over the CPU and say, instead of instead of running all the stuff you're supposed to be running, um, just run my little uh, my little uh, um, syscall chain or whatever he's going to use to take over the system. CPU. And not only does he have to make um, the microcontroller he's exploiting happy, he has to make all the microcontrollers exploiting. So a common architecture in embedded systems development is we um, have a bunch of uh, microcontrollers tied together with serial ports, and uh, um, most of them will have a pin that's hooked to a common reset line. So if the uh, uh, microcontroller sees something's uh, wrong, he can just uh, hit, uh, hit his pin high, and that actually will go high or low, depending on the microcontroller, for all of the microcontrollers in it. So it reboots all of the microcontrollers at the same time. So not only does he have to make the current microcontroller that he's exploiting happy, he's got to make it happy and talking and saying all the right things to all the other microcontrollers in the system. Otherwise, uh, um, they invoke the, uh, the suicide pact, and everybody reboots and comes back up. <coughs> So, uh, um, so if you're looking at uh, going in and, uh, and hitting the system, uh, one of the things that uh, um, you start looking at in all the, the various things that are going on uh, inside of a microcontroller is you think, well, I'll just rewrite a big chunk of this stuff. And I've actually tried this with a fairly large team with a fairly large budget to say, okay, here's a, here's a embedded system. Take the firmware, throw it away, and write your, your own firmware from scratch. Um, and it's got to do all the things that the old firmware uh, used to do and keep the system up and running. I don't think this is, impo- this is possible even under a very large budget. Um, a lot of uh, engineering that goes into building the systems is really working around the bugs. They don't actually fix the bugs, they just say, well, if this bug happens, then I'll do this, and if this strange thing happens, I'll do this. And the uh, engineer spends a lot of time in the, in the firmware just kind of working around these types of issues. And so if you're going to write new firmware from scratch, um, you're going to also have to work, write, work around all these issues, and, and what uh, generally ends up is that uh, um, your firmware just doesn't behave like the original firmware. So uh, in almost all cases, the attacker um, is going to modify the existing firmware and not rewrite it from scratch. So uh, which comes to uh, the next problem for the attacker is uh, um, how do I give my rootkit uh, CPU cycles? So I've got this uh, um, this firmware that's running in there. I've got my evil stuff that I want to shove into it, um, and uh, how do I hook it in and give it CPU cycles so that uh, my evil stuff can actually run? So uh, the first uh, and most obvious place to go look is in the vector tables. So uh, for, uh, for most embedded, uh, um, uh, embedded microcontrollers, then they've got a vector table. The vector table says when the, the reset vector fires, like on power up or a restart, go run this code at this address. Um, when this timer goes off, go run that code. Um, when uh, there's activity on this uh, serial port, then go run this other code. Um, and this is uh, the closest the attacker can get to uh, actually have an API he can go look up and deal with right off the bat. Um, so uh, one of the things the attacker can do is hook the vector table. He can come over there and say, well, I want my rootkit to run every time there's a message on port four. So he can just go to the, uh, the port four entry in the vector table, um, point it to his code, and then his code can run, and then call the original port four vector and just chain off the, uh, um, chain off the vector handler itself. Um, the, uh, the second most obvious thing to do is uh, going to be hooking the main loop. Um, in that case, most, uh, most programs and, uh, mic- and microcontroller firmware is no different. Generally, you start up on some init, um, and then you have a messaging loop that says go read a message off of one of the various serial ports, process the message, and then come back and do it again. Do that forever. And so uh, the attacker can look through the firmware, um, go find uh, some obvious place in there, and just hook into the main loop. So during the main loop processing, then he'll get his uh, um, he'll get his uh, evil stuff to run. So uh, um, so the next problem that the attacker um, has to deal with if he's going to be effective inside uh, inside the device is uh, um, is interprocess communication. So. Uh, if he's going to uh, write uh, shell code for a, a particular microcontroller so he can spread between the microcontrollers on the board and eventually get to the one that like turns the power on and off for the, uh, um, for the building, then uh, um, he's going to have to write a bunch of shellcode for that. And this is actually really not as complex as a sound. This is a sound that's really... A, um, Really close to writing fine sock shellcode in uh, in a normal PC exploitation, where uh, you would uh, throw a uh, throw a shellcode over to a web server and then sit there and walk up the file descriptors until you find the one you're on, bind a shell to it, and then get the shell. Um, so most serial ports are called, uh, open via an open call in the embedded uh, in, in the embedded operating system, and you can go find that table and walk down it. Um, another thing that they, you can do is you can go write the UARTs. So if you have your microcontroller sitting on your board, um, then uh, they'll have hardware acceleration for a number of serial ports. So there might be four UARTs on a particular one. So um, those UARTs are mapped into particular chunks of memory. So if you want to go read and write from the UART, all you have to do is go read from a particular part of memory. And every time you read a byte off that particular chunk of memory, then uh, um, it reads one byte off the serial port. If you want to write to it, you just write a byte to, to, the, to the other uh, chunk of memory, and it goes off on the serial port. Um, so uh, you can just walk through the known addresses for that particular microcontroller for those UARTs and sit there and read and write. Um, the problem for the, one of the problems that, that uh, the attacker is going to run into really fast is what if the, um, the uh, person that wrote it um, uses something that's called uh, bit banging? So uh, if you have a if you have a microcontroller and it's got three hardware accel- uh, accelerated uh, um, UARTs on there, but you want to talk to seven devices, then uh, um, you have to use some of the other general purpose pins and just go and turn them on and off in the appropriate order that makes it look like an RS-232 or an SPI connection or that type of stuff. Um, in that case, he's, he, he's pretty much is, uh, is forced to go and walk down through, uh, through all the, the various file descriptors and figure out how the, um, uh, how the uh, um, operating system um, actually implements those. So uh, as he's doing this here, he's going to have to do this multiple times. So if he's uh, the attacker's out here where the uh, network card is and says, oh, hey, TCPIP stack, here, have my big payload and give me code execution, and he gets code execution on the... uh, the microcontroller that's running the network communication, he may have to exploit his way onto the main CPU, then to, uh, say, the backplane CPU so we can get across the backplane to some IO CPU that actually has momentary control over the pin that does whatever he wants, that turns the pump up and on and off and that type of stuff. So an actual chain of things, then, uh, um, if the attacker wants, uh, has to get all the way to the end pin, he may actually have to exploit um, several different uh, embedded processes in order to get there. Um, In most cases, the attacker will just have to get uh, one or two hops deep, um, and then he'll send properly formatted serial commands to the next CPU to do whatever he wants. And that's going to be fast enough. Um, So... uh, um, so uh, the problem that he's got with that is uh, back to the rebooting Um If you've got, uh, like here, where I may have to take over four CPUs, if I mess up on any one of those four P- CPUs or it gets a message that it doesn't like, um, chances are one of them is going to grab that message and then hold the reset line down. The whole thing reboots and the attacker doesn't, uh, doesn't get uh, um, control like he wants. Ooh, next. So... Uh, <coughs> Um, so if we're looking at uh, at this for the attacker, he's got to, uh, if he can't rewrite the whole firmware and actually make it work out, that would be, um, especially doing four of them for a particular hack, that would be... Um, Kind of an infinite time sync. I don't think you're ever going to actually see that actually in the real world, where an attacker rewrites the whole firmware for for four of them. So uh, what he has to do is figure out how to get uh, um, the original messages back across. So he's got one microcontroller talking to the next microcontroller, and it normally talks whatever protocol the the uh, programmer decided to make up for uh, for passing messages back and forth. And uh, um, he's got to tunnel those original messages over over the top. So with his exploit, he's got code execution on both sides, and uh, um, usually what most people would try first is, ha oh, I'll just take over the CPU, or I'll take over the serial line, and I'll just only, only talk back and forth to my rootkit, except then uh, um, some uh, process on the uh, microcontroller will say, hey, I haven't gotten a message in, like, forever. Let's just reboot this sucker. Um, so he's got to tunnel them over. So um, one basic approach that the attacker can take is actually take his rootkit messages and then have a um, take over the serial uh, communications entirely and say rootkit message, rootkit message, rootkit message, and just put some identifier that's going to embed um, the original message inside the rootkit protocol. Um, and then he can hand that uh, new that uh, original message back off to the process that wants it, keeping all the microcontrollers happy and everything up and running. Um, A second approach is protocol interleaving, and that's where the attacker um, uh, hooks himself into the message processing loop and just adds a new message type to the protocol. Most... most protocols or header stacking protocols uh, that uh, you expect, you know, some type field in the protocol. In this case, the attacker would just go to the case statement or whatever else that uh, processes a message and say, I have a new message type. It's message type 19, and this is my rootkit message. Um, the upside of, uh, of doing protocol interleaving is that the attacker, um, if attacker messes up, then uh, normal messages are going back and forth across the serial port, keeping everything happy and giving them a chance to re-exploit without having a full reboot on it. Um, so, a uh, um, so, uh, powerful attacker can actually do a much better job. Um, uh, so, uh, um, if you go look at uh, uh, somebody that's doing, say, protocol interleaving, they're going to have a, a bunch of headers that, they've, uh, that they've, they've stuck in there, and then they just stuck in a, uh, a new message type. In this case, the attacker, um, there was a normal message type 4, and the attacker took a new message type FF, and he puts some data inside that message type FF. Um, but a powerful attacker could actually do better. Um, so, uh, if you if you go play with things and you follow code pathways up from reboot um, back to the processing loop, um, you you find that uh, um, certain fields have to be maintained in order to keep this microcontroller happy, um, and uh, um, other uh, other fields really don't matter. They're actually part of the data, um, and they can be gone away. They can be uh, done away with. Um, so uh, um, a more powerful attacker um, could use something like redundancy coding to preserve the artifacts in the serial protocol um, while putting arbitrary data back into it. And so if you're looking at, uh, um, looking at uh, doing this type of stuff, um, complex algorithms, while they're mathematically hard, generally don't bulk up the rootkit very much. Um, It's always actually all the if-then statements in the rootkit that make it really large in size. Um, So things like redundancy coding can be used to uh, take a candidate message, you run it through a bunch of algorithms which burn some CPU cycles and a few milliseconds, um, and out comes your message, but it doesn't bulk up the rootkit very much. Um, so uh, once the attacker maps out the message structure and out, maps out the data blobbed inside the message structure, then he knows what 's u- usable so then you can take the uh, the message plus the offsets plus the coding and then uh, um, make a new message that is actually properly formed for that and then if you hook the uh, defender hooks up a uh, um, Hooks up some leads to it and actually sees stuff going back by. He's not going to see. He's not going to see messages like uh, you know, um, type one message, type one message, invalid data, invalid data, invalid data for him to uh, to actually uh, um, zoom in on. He's going to see type one message, type two message, type three message, type sixteen message, etc. And it's going to be properly formatted. Um, so the next problem that the attacker has is where do you put your rootkit? So uh, uh, most vendors, when they're uh, designing this stuff, actually see extra flash inside of inside of a particular microcontroller or the external flash as wasted revenue. Um, so if there's extra space in here and I'm not doing anything with it, this is a feature that I could have, a place where I could have added a feature. I could have sold more units and that would have helped my bottom line. So it's very rare that you actually come and get a. Uh, Um, get an embedded device that has flash that's not full. Um, It's usually almost always full. So if the attacker wants to come over there and shove his rootkit in there there, he's got to make he's got to actually make room for it. So something like Stuxnet is actually the anomaly where you've got a PLC that's a general purpose program device that had a lot of extra space in it just sitting there waiting to be used. um, In most cases you're not going to have that. Um, so uh, um, this has actually led directly to greater exploitability in microcontrollers because we get feature creep. So if you have uh, server NICs, the two major vendors of server NICs both have web servers on their server NICs. So uh, like a lot of the servers in your data center, if you uh, come over there and just change your Ethernet ID, you can actually get to a web server on your, on your server NIC while your machine is powered off. So, uh, um, uh, so both of the major vendors have actually had, uh, had exploitable, uh, um, exploitable errors in, in, their, in their NICs. So if you look on the NIC, you see the little card there, most people are thinking, you know, uh, really small, can't do anything. But uh, better, a better way to think about the the chip that's sitting on your nick is like a 486. Um, uh, they're, they're about that level of power because uh, Moore's Law apply, has applied to microcontrollers over time. They're getting bigger and beefier and having more stuff. In that case, then, the, uh, for the attacker, even if the uh, machine is off, you just go overflow the buffer, j- uh, jump into there, tr- tell the machine to, to power, power back on, use DMA to inject yourself into main memory, and ta-da, you win. Um, and then you 're really hard to find because nobody can go look for you on the flash um, so but that was a, a light. so um, so where can he put his rootkit? there 's kind of basic intermediate, advanced, and, and a lazy approach that uh, that he can take there um, so a uh, basic approach is just a dump functionality since there 's a lot of feature creep inside the firmware of all the various uh, um, various pizzas. Um, he can just go look for little used functions and just dump those off and reuse that, uh, that memory space um, for his own usage. Um, so a uh, common place that you would find this are a lot of times things like user interface functions. We've just taken over this embedded device, and uh, if the, the purpose of this chunk of firmware is actually to interact with me, the user, then you really don't want that as the attacker. So, so these can just go. Um, and uh, flash is flash. Since uh, everything is uh, read, write, and execute in most microcontrollers, then all of the human-only data can just be easily replaced. For example, if, you, if you're booting the microcontroller and it gives you some sort of nice graphical logo, you can go, just go take that image, throw the image away, and stick your rootkit there. Um, But uh, um, with a basic approach, then uh, um, the attacker is much more likely to get noticed because if anybody does go try and log into the device and just can't log into it anymore, then you can't do that. Or if you expect to see a nice logo and what you really see is a bunch of gobbledygook coming across, you saw that in a bunch of the the iPhone firmware type stuff where when you're booting the machine, you saw all the Apple stuff kind of get corrupted because it was reusing some of that memory. Um, then we can go uh, look for some intermediate approaches. So uh, an intermediate approach that uh, they can use is a uh, local compression. So you've got a big chunk of firmware out over there, and uh, most compilers actually do a good job of, of optimizing each individual function when you write stuff. But they do a really bad job of inter-function optimization. So uh, this function is optimized, and this function is optimized, um, but uh, the two functions are almost identical, and they do almost identical things. They share a lot of functionality, but the compilers, because uh, um, they defer all that back down to the linker, don't actually, um, don't actually do the optimization very well between the two functions. And so the, uh, um, the attacker can look at the firmware and do a better job uh, than the compiler and re-optimize the firmware. Um, in this case, he's going to, uh, um, to be able to prefer, uh, preserve uh, um, total functionality on the firmware, so it, it acts exactly like it's supposed to act. Um, actually uh, p- uh, programmers that program in C++ and use C++ templates, these are, these are awesome when you're trying to write rootkits for things, because each, each variant of the template is pretty much exactly like all the other variants, except for some type field, um, in which case then they can all be squished together. So uh, as an example of what the uh, um, attacker can do, this is, a, um, uh, this is a, an optimization that some compilers actually do um, called function tailing. And so in function tailing, then you uh, set up a stack frame and you push all your stuff onto there and you execute a bunch of code. And then usually the last thing a function does is pop all the things that it's pushed um, back off the stack uh, and then return to the calling function. Um, so this is an uh, example of function tailing where the two functions um, are sharing a common pop sled and then this jump into the pop sled at the appropriate place to pop off their arguments in the appropriate order. Uh-huh. Um, uh, so uh, if he's actually going to go find um, repeated blocks across the uh, the firmware, then this uh, turns down into a greatest common size match, um, which is an NP hard problem, um, but is very doable over the size that uh, um, the firmware is. In that case, you go look for all these common things, and a lot of these common things will actually be compiler emits, where the compiler when you the compiler says. When I want to set up a for loop, then emit these instructions. When I want to set up a while loop, then emit these other instructions. So you just go through and like, okay, for loop, for loop, for loop, for loop squish to one for loop. Everybody jump to the uh, to the same squished for loop uh, preamble, and then you've cleared some uh, cleared some spaces on it. Maybe. Um, so then, the attacker run, uh, attacker that does local optimizations clears rooms room for uh, his rootkit in in the actual memory space. Um, but uh, it's actually really hard to take adv- Well, not really hard, but it's it's harder to take advantage of this as the uh, as the rootkit writer because what he gets is an image that looks like Swiss cheese. So he's done all these little optimizations all through memory and. Uh, and uh, then he writes up his rootkit, well he's got to write his rootkit in very, very small little function blocks that will fit into each one of these little ones and then hack together a, uh, hack together a linker or a relocator script that actually chains all these little memory um, uh, regions together to actually do his uh, rootkit. And this will take a significant amount of time per. Uh, per. So, uh, so sometimes what you get is a lazy approach. Um, so, for the lazy or unskilled that uh, don't want to spend time recompressing the firmware and making room for themselves, then uh, what they can do is slave one microcontroller to another microcontroller. In this case, you'll see most of the code uh, that's actually uh, um, intact on the on this on a small microcontroller that's doing something that has immediate access to uh, to the to the highs and lows that turn stuff on and off in the field. Um, and then a larger microcontroller. And so what the, uh, the smaller microcontroller has to do is when it comes over there and it wants to give, uh, um, give CPU uh, cycles to the rootkit, it actually comes, blocks, and then calls on t- across the serial port to a whole other bigger microcontroller that was easier to optimize. And the bigger microcontroller then takes, takes control for a few moments, does what it wants to do uh, do, uh, um, do to the smaller microcontroller, and then lets the microcontroller resume before the watchdog timer times out. Um, this approach works really well in motherboard rootkits, um, where you've uh, where where you've compromised the system. You want to get down onto the down below the operating system so you can hide effectively and. Uh, and go hit that. And so you've got, you, uh, you want momentary control on, say, a little USB controller on there. So when people plug USB uh, keys in, you can go inject shell code into all of the executables. Um, but uh, the little USB controller might have like 4 or 8K worth of uh, RAM. And if your uh, shell code is you know, 900 bytes long, that's a lot of optimization to get down to there. Um, so you can just go stick the, uh, um, the root kit over on like the SATA controller or something like that that has a lot more, uh, a lot more space and then slave it off the, to, the, uh, um, to the other microcontroller. Um, So this would be a good example, this is just an Arduino Uno, so I'm not picking on anybody in particular again. Um, And so in this case we've got uh, two microcontrollers, you've got uh, this uh, Atmel AVR sitting here um, that's got about 32K of flash, a lot more room to play with, and then the actual USB controller, which is uh, also another Atmel chip. uh, chip sitting there that's got about 4K of flash, and both of them run the Atmel AVR assembly, so this would be uh, a great place for an attacker to slave one, one to the other. So if you want to go instead of trying to to shove uh, um, so this one we mo- actually modified so that it would take over all the PlayStations that you plugged it into um, and so the uh, Um, The optimal uh, place to put that would have been in the uh, the little USB processor, but um, it's only got 4K of flash, so clearing a K of memory is really going to be hard there. On the other hand, if you have the main processor and you've got 32K of flash, then that's a much easier job. Um, So uh, then we get to uh, more advanced uh, approaches. So uh, um, if the attacker doesn't want to do any of these things, then uh, um, he can do what we call firmware refactoring. And in that case, what he's going to do is, uh, is take the actual binary that's sitting on uh, in the firmware, um, pull it up, and then parse it back into its, uh, um, into its syntax tree, optimize the syntax tree, um, uh, do all the optimizations in the syntax tree, and then convert it back to assembly. Um, and you can do this, uh, this microcontroller independent. So in that case, then the, then the uh, attacker doesn't need to learn uh, AVR assembly and ARM assembly and MSP430 assembly, et cetera. You can do it in, in a uh, assembly-independent uh, in, in manner. And then after you, do, you get done with all your optimizations, then you're left with one large contiguous block of memory. Um, so uh, um, in order to do this, the instructions have to be decomposed into their micro operations um, that describe what that, uh, what that actual assembly operation does and all the side effects of that operation. And then you can re-optimize the stream. Um, so uh, if we do our job right, converting a binary to the micro ops and the micro ops back to the binary should be guaranteed to pre- preserve this functionality so that the, uh, um, so that the microcontroller uh, is happy and it works exactly the way it's supposed to work. So if we're looking at micro-ops, what is a micro If we have an instruction like a push eax, this is actually a complex instruction. It does two things. It moves the, uh, moves the stack pointer down by four bytes um, to make room for the uh, value you just pushed onto the stack, and actually then takes that value and moves it to the stack. So a push-a-a-x would be decomposed into two micro-ops, the, the adding four to the stack pointer and then moving the four bytes into where the stack pointer uh, points. So, if we look at uh, this as a as a syntax graph, we can actually take all those micro ops and then turn them into a syntax graph for that particular instruction. Um, so, uh, so thumbs up, thumbs down. Am I getting way too technically and deep, or we're good? Okay. Um, so, I'm going to I'm going to think we're good uh, um, uh, for that. And time-wise, I think I have just a few minutes, so I'll go fast. Um, so we can uh, take, let's just take this uh, ARM instruction right here, this LDR.W. If you actually look to see exactly what that uh, instruction does, um, then it's actually a fairly complex graph um, that, uh, that comes out of it. Um, so at that point, once you have it into a graph, you can do a greatest common subtree match, um, which in P-hard, stick it together, and then turn it back. Um, so, uh, which, uh, which is really awesome for cloud rootkits. Um, all you do is you uh, get your favorite virtual hardware fuzzer um, to go fuzz the virtual SCSI controller um, that gives you code execution into the kernel and then just uh, curl up onto a USB controller and tell the cloud, hey, I'm overheating and it moves all the VMs away. Moves new, uh, you say, hey, I'm not overheating. the moves new VMs back. You inject into the stuff. That's way, way easier than it should be. So uh, let's hit, uh, um, let's hit forensics. So uh, we're trying to do forensics on the device, and uh, you call up the vendor and say, hey, I need this particular version of the firmware, because I think I've got, uh, got some firmware that's been modified. And they say, um, uh, I'm tech support, and you have to upgrade to version 5.1.4.3.2. And I'm like, no, no, I'm doing forensics, really. Can you go find the original firmware for this device? And they say, I'll go ask somebody. And then you wait two days and call them again, and have the same conversation over and over. So uh, most of the time you're going to come grab the firmware either through an exposed JTAG port or um, pull it off to the ex- uh, external flash. Um, and then uh, one of the things you can do, so uh, you want to go spot the rootkit without having access to the original firmware. Um, in that case you can go turn things back into what I call binary normal form. Every compiler is going to uh, optimize away from the C standard in different ways to try and make this stuff faster and smaller. And the chances of the attacker using the exact same revision of a compiler um, from the, uh, um, uh, from the uh, original implementation, implementer is very small. So if we go look at some of these optimizations, like uh, um, like an XOR ECX, ECX is actually zeroing the ECX register, or there's a whole bunch of different no-ops, um, different compiler use different no-ops depending on when, they, when it was made. Um, then uh, we can actually go look through these. So if we actually look at, say, uh, this is the same executable compiled with two different versions of GCC, you can see up here then we're just moving three into a memory space, the word three, um, which uh, it o- is optimized that into a mem copy. But if you go look at a later version of GCC, it's actually optimized that with two moves onto the stack. These are different approaches to, uh, uh, to doing the exact same thing. Um, so uh, if we actually come over there and we run through all of the, uh, all these variants, and as we're turning the uh, binary into the, uh, the uh, syntax trees, we can, op- we can note each one of these optimizations and how these optimizations um, differ from binary normal form, and we can color them on a graph. So uh, um, if we go look at them, the, the graphs will actually produce the same, it'll produce the same, uh, same graph after we convert to binary normal form. It should, because it came from the same C code. Um, but uh, if we come over there and we color all the uh, various blocks um, with the with the differences, um, then, you, uh, then pretty much all you have to do is hold down on the down arrow and show each optimization. And then when you come over there, you'll get a graph like this, where uh, optim- the particular optimizations are only pro- uh, applied to certain chunks of the subgraph. And that, then we know that probably these are the chunks of the subgraph that are actually the ones that the attacker um, stuck there for his rootkit. And we can go uh, reverse engineer those quickly and uh, figure out what the attacker was op- was up to. Um, so uh, I think I'm right at the end. So I'm going to uh, um, just leave you for uh, leave you with uh, food for thought on all of your embedded systems, um, which is. Uh, um If uh, This was actually a board out of a windmill, and uh, the windmill manufacturer swore to me that there was no wireless on this board, and the only way to get on and off off this windmill was was via the, the serial line he provided. But as soon as you pop the top, you see this has got a CC1010 on it, which is actually a 900 megahertz chip, and the little blue thing over here is actually a ceramic antenna. Um, so the chances of your field equipment staying wireless free in the near future um, are very, very slim, and which, in which case you're probably going to be in doing uh, um, embedded forensics um, far more quickly than you think you will. And so, uh, as always, we live in interesting times. So I think I, I ran all the way up to and a little bit over, so, um, so uh, um, uh, we have time for just a couple of questions. We have no questions. I did a perfect job. <laughs> so, yes.
0: Oh, okay.